talked about why that's the best date. And the conquest took about seven years. Around what time did the judges period begin? Exodus begins in 1450. Conquest takes about seven or eight years. Got to add the wilderness wanderings in there. Judges period begins about... What was that? Well, the Exodus begins in 1450, so after the wilderness wanderings, got to add those 40 years in there, and that brings us around 1410, then seven or eight years, brings us around 1402. But just for simplicity's sake, around 1400. 1400 is when the Judges period begins, and it lasts until the monarchy, until the monarchy is set up in Israel about 1050 B.C. So, between these years, how long, how long, or we see how long the judges' period was, about 350 years. The judges served Israel as leaders in that capacity for about 350 years. There's a problem, though. There's a problem with this, these dates, because if you add up the years that are presented in the book of Judges, the times of oppression and the times of rest, you, do, you get more years than 350, considerably more, 400 plus. Uh-oh, is our biblical timeline totally off? We set up these other dates, 1400 and 1050, by looking at the details of the Bible. Does the Bible contradict itself? No, there's a reasonable solution here. And that is, and here is the reasonable solution, the years of these deliverer judges, at least sometimes, overlap with one another. Multiple judges arise in different places to provide deliverances for regional oppressions. Not necessarily national oppressions. This is an important idea for us to realize. The judges, they were local deliverers. Not necessarily always national deliverers. This makes sense, though, because, as we've already seen, the system of judges established by Moses had a whole, system, or had a whole hierarchy of judges. We would not be too surprised that God raised up more than one judge at a, at a time as a deliverer because there were supposed to be a lot of judges in Israel. Also, you know that Israel is very decentralized at this point. One tribe's problems do not necessarily directly affect the other tribes. In fact, in the book of Judges, we often see that the judges, whenever they're fighting against Israel's enemies, they don't call on all the tribes. It'll, it'll mention which tribes are called, and it's only part of them. Well, that's because those are the tribes that were nearby. They were the ones that actually were affected by this issue, or they were the ones that could help. We can even point to specific instances in the book of Judges where this overlapping is evident. I'll show you two of them. Look at Judges chapter 4 for a second. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. The verse is short. It reads, Judges 4, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Okay, Ehud is one of the judges. And after he dies, Israel is said here to rebel. And that's going to bring a new judge. But if you just look a few verses earlier, Ehud is not the judge that the author just mentioned. Who is? Shamgar. Shamgar was the, the judge that he just spoke about. And Ehud actually comes before Shamgar. We have Ehud, Shamgar, and then the judge that comes in chapter 4, that's Deborah. 
So why does the text say that after Ehud, Israel turned away and not Shamgar? If Shamgar was the one it just talked about. Is the Bible just confusing itself? Is the history hopelessly contradictory? No. It's that Ehud and Shamgar simply served Israel at the same time. And it's, it's fine to say after Ehud's death, it's when Israel rebels and causes Deborah to arise as a judge. We see a similar issue, issue in Judges chapter, eh, Judges chapter 10. Judges 10, verses 7 to 8. God gives Israel into the hands, the verse says, of the Philistines and the sons of Ammon. But when you look at the account that comes afterwards about Jephthah, he only delivers Israel from Ammon. What happened to the Philistines? Three other, three other judges appear in the narrative, and Phil, the Philistines are not mentioned. Until a fourth judge appears, who finally deals with the Philistines. And that's Samson. How can we explain this? Why does it say the Philistines and the Ammonites dealt with Israel, but only Ammon is dealt with by, these, um, by the judge that is mentioned right afterwards? It's because multiple nations were oppressing Israel at the same time. And so you had multiple judges serving at the same time. The years of the judges overlap. We should understand, God was not necessarily giving all the tribes into the hand of each oppressing neighbor during this period. Rather, Israel was experiencing multiple regional oppressions and therefore multiple regional deliverances by multiple regional judges. And in fact, if you look at where the judges come from, they come from all different tribes. Questions so far? Okay, now we're going to do an activity. I've given you this double-sided chart that organizes the information we get in the book of Judges about the judges and their various deliverances. And I've organized the columns of the chart to show a couple of different things. What circumstances provoked oppression? Who the oppressor was? Who was the judge God raised up? How God used that judge to deliver? And how long the period of rest was after God's deliverance? That is, how long did that judge preside in Israel? What I want you to do now, either by yourself or with those sitting next to you, is I want you to read through both sides of this chart and answer two questions. You can answer the questions mentally or do them somewhere on your sheet or on a separate piece of paper. I want you to consider these two questions that I put up here. First, what pattern does Israel follow or fall into throughout the book of Judges? I want you to identify that pattern and the different parts of that pattern. And then, I want you to see if there are, are there any patterns within the judges themselves? Anything that keeps on appearing in the judges themselves? Okay, so read through the chart, answer those two questions. Questions about what you're about to do? All right, I'm going to give, or is there a question? Okay, I'll give you about five minutes. If we need more time, I can always give that to you. Please Look up when you're finished. So take about five minutes.
Okay, let's go over these two questions now. First, what pattern does Israel follow throughout the book of Judges? Step one, they turn away from the Lord. Yeah. Israel turns from God to serve sin and idols. Step two, God sends an oppression. God sends an oppression usually through another nation who oppresses Israel. Step three. They cry out to the Lord. That same phrase you'll notice in the deliverance details keeps on appearing. The sons of Israel cry to the Lord. The sons of Israel cry to the Lord. That's what they do. They cry to God for deliverance. They turn back to God. What's step four? God sends deliverance through a judge. He raises up a judge to deliver him. That judge does deliver them. And then step five. We will get to that in just a second, but they do enjoy a period of rest after the deliverance is is accomplished. Israel enjoys a period of rest, but just as you were saying, Joe, what happens that causes the people to almost immediately turn back to sin? The judge dies. And you notice that on on the cause section of your chart, it's connected even with the phrase, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, usually because the judge died. After so-and-so died, they turned away. After so-and-so died, they turned away. So this is the pattern that keeps on appearing. Six or seven times in the book of Judges, we see this pattern. They turn to idols. They experience oppression. God, or they cry out to God. God sends a judge to deliver them. They enjoy a period of rest. The judge dies, and they turn right back, and they start the pattern all over again. The author of Judges actually tells us in the beginning of the book of Judges that this is what Israel does. Turn back over to Judges chapter 2 for a second. Because we get a little bit extra information. Judges chapter 2 verses 16 and 19. We looked at the previous section in one of our classes about Israel disobeys God. Talks about how Israel turned away and what they turned to. But look at verse 16. This describes the deliverance part of the pattern. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet... They did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So, as soon as the judge dies, not only does Israel turn away from God, but we get an additional detail. What else do we learn? They act even worse than they did at the beginning. Even worse than their forefathers. So we see this pattern. It's a a cycle, but we can even describe it as a downward spiral. They not only keep returning to sin, but they they go back to it with even more gusto. They get even worse. 
what pattern appears in the judges? There are actually a number of um, really interesting details about the judges. What's something that you noticed? What's your question, Carol? Well, um, certainly that section, uh, your question about, is that, is that phrase in the Bible? Certainly we know that in the Pentateuch, there is that word, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, the second part I don't uh, exactly recall about protecting my loved ones from harm. Certainly that principle is consistent with biblical principles, but Israel was to obey the Lord because the Lord their God was the God and he is the one God. They were not to serve him along with other idols. So that is true, Carol. But getting back to the question that I asked, what patterns do we see in the judges themselves? What stands out? That's right. We certainly see that they were empowered by God. Multiple times you see the phrase, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. This was a supernaturally raised up deliverer who was specially empowered by God um, to do his deliverance, usually through mighty acts of courage and strength. What else? Uh, They, yes, they certainly show weakness at the same time. Even though they were supernaturally empowered, even though their office was to act as a righteous adjudicator, They sin in some pretty big ways. You may have noticed, they also, like Israel, seem to get worse over time. In the beginning, we have Othniel. Seems like a pretty righteous guy, though he does marry his niece. This marriage, while not explicitly forbid in Leviticus, does violate the principles God gave there regarding incestuous relationships. She would have married her uncle. That's uh, that's not, that doesn't... Go, or that's not consistent with God's law. Gideon, we talked about the righteous part of his life last time, but he creates an ephod. He creates a ceremonial breastplate after he's delivered Israel and denied the kingship. And this breastplate becomes used for idolatry by his household and by all Israel. Now perhaps Gideon could say, oh, I never meant for that to happen. But it was a foolish choice. It was a bad idea and probably born from pride. Why, why take the donation to create this breastplate? Jephthah, sacrifices his own daughter as a burnt offering in order to fulfill a vow. Yes, I know some say Jephthah merely dedicated his daughter as a perpetual virgin in service to God, and there is an argument to be made for that. But I think the better interpretation, and we don't have time to fully talk through that issue right now, is that he killed and sacrificed her as part of the vow that he had made. If you want to know more about that, we can talk about it afterwards. Samson, the last judge mentioned in the book of Judges, multiple grievous sins. First of all, he violates his Nazarite vow by voluntarily touching what is unclean. He was supposed to not touch anything unclean as a perpetual Nazarite, but very noticeably, he takes honey from the carcass of a lion and shares it with his parents. That would have been unclean. But more seriously, Samson continually goes after foreign women. He tries to marry one. He uses another as a prostitute and then falls in love with a third. Delilah, who results in his ruin. But you may have noticed there's one son that multiple judges commit, or one sin that multiple judges commit, and what is that? 
They all multiply for themselves. Wives, well, not all of them, but many of them, they multiply wives for themselves. Now, the, the text actually isn't explicit with that each time, but it talks about how many kids they had. Multiple judges have 30-plus kids. That means they have multiple wives. Gideon, Jair, Ibsen, and Abdon, they all multiply their wives and concubines. Now, why? Why would they do this? What reasons could we think of? Well, one, they could have been and probably were making use of their power and prestige as a judge and just using it to seek after pleasure, get more women, more sexual experiences. But there's another reason. Yeah, Roy. Okay, I think that's definitely part of it. They were doing just what other people did, especially the people who were in positions of authority, maybe the kings around them. If you were a ruler or if you were someone with authority, it wasn't simply that you could use your authority for your own pleasure. But why else would they why else would they have many children? Yeah. Often, yes, more sons does equal more power, especially as you orchestrate strategic marriage relationships. You may notice one of the judges, it says that he married his sons and daughters outside of his, and then the, the word is not provided in the text. It says family, or clan, it could be clan, maybe tribe. Well, why is that significant? <clears throat> well, he must have done that on purpose, to secure some kind of familial alliances, or to gain influence in various places. Another judge, it says his 30 sons ruled in 30 cities. So this was about uh, establishing power. And certainly we see the same thing in another part of Israel's history. Who else multiplies wives? Solomon and David. The kings of Israel do the same thing. And again, it's part of using their power for their own pleasure, using their power and prestige for their own pleasure, and also part of strategic alliances. Why does Solomon marry the queen of Egypt? Well, it must have been part of an alliance. They were building up their own power, building up their own security. <clears throat> By the way, you may, may have noticed there's also a, the detail of donkey riding. These sons from these judges, they're mentioned a couple times as riding on donkeys. That is another detail that shows up again in Israel's monarchy. The princes, they ride on donkeys. Of course, Messiah ultimately rides on a donkey as well. So the judges, we could say more about the judges, but these judges, these faith-filled, spirit-empowered deliverers and adjudicators, they still sin in pretty big ways. And they seem to get worse over time, just as Israel does. <clears throat> now, in light of the scriptures that we've read and the, these observations that we've just made, and we could make many more, there's a lot. I hope you can continue to use this chart. It's very interesting. I think you can... Uh, glean a number of insights from it. But let's ask a couple of interpretive questions now. First, why? We see this pattern. Why does Israel keep turning away from God to serve idols even after he delivers them miraculously, powerfully, multiple times? I'm sure there are a number of factors in this answer, so let's see if we can identify them. Why does Israel keep turning away? Yeah, Craig. Okay, I think 
<laughs> we can uh, tease that out a little bit, but to repeat your comment, short memory and a strong sin nature. Um, I'll come back to that in just a second. Yeah, Rob. Mm. Right. So that's, that's another good question and something for us to think about. How many of these people who are turning to God are actually doing so? How many of them are actually saved, actually exercising faith? Can we say that it's all of them? Um, to come back to what you're saying, Craig, about the short-term memory, we can break that down into two possible reasons why Israel is turning away. And one is, it's because the repentant Israelites just die out. You look at the sections of rest that come after the deliverance of the judges, especially in the beginning, they're very long, 40 plus years. That means that a number of Israelites would die and new Israelites would be born. And perhaps some of the Israelites who were dying were the faithful ones. They were the ones that were really repentant, really wanted to follow the Lord. And the people who were born, they didn't get this uh, conviction from their forefathers and they easily turned away. I think that could be part of it. I think that is part of it. But I think also, even the Israelites who didn't die off, they didn't remove the stumbling blocks. And that caused them to go back into sin. They really did repent. They really did have a desire to follow after the Lord. But they never dealt with the things that would draw them away. Perhaps that was also part of it. That probably was also part of it. Why else, though? Yeah, Dwayne. Okay, what does Psalm 78 say? Mm Yeah. Yeah, I think that's also part of it. Thanks for pointing that out, Dwayne. Psalm 78, talking about the the need for Israel to continually teach their children about the ordinances of the Lord and about their unfaithful forefathers that the children would learn and not do what their unfaithful forefathers did. And as you point out, Dwayne, that obviously is not happening to the extent that it needs to happen in Israel because the new generation easily turns away. I think there's some other things that we can say. We're running a little bit short on time, so I'm going to supply some of these reasons myself. Another reason why Israel turns away is because they no longer have righteous leadership. They did have a system of judges, but this system was failing in some capacity. Israel's leadership has a profound effect, you may notice, on the behavior of the people. They follow the Lord as long as the judge is alive, but as soon as it's gone, they fall away. There's also, it's not recorded on your sheet, but there's a certain refrain that appears throughout the end of the book of Judges. Two phrases that keep repeating themselves. If you're familiar, what are those phrases? Danny. Exactly. There was no king in Israel at that time. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those phrases are related. Though, or because there was no king, 
there was behavioral and moral anarchy. And that suggests that they needed something to deal with that situation. A king, a righteous king. God was Israel's king and should have been sufficient for them. But they just would not and could not consistently obey and love him. They needed a human leader to establish justice, to punish evil, and to serve as a righteous example of faith and love for God. They may ask, well, why, when they ask for a king, does God rebuke them? Isn't that what they needed? Well, this is a difficult question, but I believe the reason is because of why they asked for a king. They didn't want a king in order that they might serve God or trust him better. They wanted a king so they could be like the other nations and trust in their king to deliver them and protect them. God, and we know that this is ultimately true because of Messiah, he always planned to have a king over Israel who perfectly represented himself, who had his heart and administered his justice. And this is typified first in David. David is um, kind of like a central point in the Old Testament. This is what you've needed, Israel. But David himself was not completely perfect. What Israel really needed was the Lord Jesus, the God-man, the perfect establisher of justice and teacher of Yahweh and explainer of his way. But just as Israel at that time, at the end of the judges, they sought a king for the wrong reasons, so in Jesus' own coming, they were seeking Messiah for the wrong reasons, right? They didn't look for someone to restore Israel to the obedience to the Lord, but instead a deliverer from Rome, the exact same thing that the people in the judges' time were looking for. Israel has never learned its lesson. They did need a king to teach them God's way, but they sought a king that would simply allow them to pursue their lusts. I think that's part of the reason why Israel keeps turning away, but also it's simply because Israel never really changes. They're never truly repentant. They're never fully repentant. As we read in Judges 2, they were not listening to the voice of their judges even while the, vo- even while the judges were alive. And this was the same in the days of Moses and Joshua. In Moses' farewell speech in Deuteronomy 29, I don't have time to read it now, but Moses tells the new generation they still did not have new hearts that would follow the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 31, God tells Moses that even before they've entered the promised land, Israel is already developing its intention to abandon God and embrace the gods of the land. God tells Moses they will turn away as soon as they are prosperous. And even in Joshua's speech, his farewell speech in Joshua 24, he twice exhorts supposedly faithful and obedient Israel to put away the foreign gods that are among them. Israel at that time was like, yes, we'll serve the Lord. We will follow the Lord always. And he says, then put away the gods that are among you. Why do you still have the gods among you? Israel in the time of the judges was no different. The people in general did not have hearts to follow God. They were like Pharaoh. They only relented of their evil when God made it too uncomfortable to continue. And as soon as the circumstances changed, they fell away again. Israel's repentance was always incomplete. And we know even after the judges period, the pattern continued. I think all of these reasons are involved as to why Israel keeps turning away. But if God knows these things, and he did, 
Well, why do you continue to save them? Why do you continue to save them? We had to run through these briefly again because of time. Multiple reasons. Cer certainly, partially, it's because some of them were really repentant. For their sakes and because of their prayers, he acted. Not everyone in Israel was wicked. We know some people in the judges' period include Boaz, Ruth, Naomi. They were truly righteous people, and they certainly cried out to God for themselves and for their neighbors. And certainly these righteous ones probably encouraged others to join the righteous bandwagon. People who were not truly repentant, but they got along for a time. They went along for a time. And then when the situation changed or the truly faithful ones died out, Israel turned away again. But God did it for the sake of their truly repentant. God also did it because he just desired to show compassion to Israel. You saw in that one verse we read that he was moved to pity by their groaning. He had made himself Israel's God. He chose to set his love on them. He felt a great burden for them. Even while judging them for what they deserved, he was looking for an excuse, any excuse to grant deliverance and comfort to Israel. Judges 10.16 says, after the people finally put away their foreign gods, God could bear the misery of Israel no longer. He was so moved. And he knew the vast majority of Israel would use his compassion as an excuse to turn away from him again, but he was faithful to his own loving nature, his own saving nature. He acted because he set his love on Israel and gave them what they did not deserve as a nation. Nehemiah 9 talks uh, more about this, really emphasizing that even though they kept abandoning the Lord, when they cried to him, he acted because he had compassion. More fundamentally, God keeps saving them because he remembers his covenant. And we saw this in the, in the verses we read in Leviticus. Israel's repentance was always suspect, but God was already committed to preserving Israel, not because of his covenant with Israel itself, but because of his covenant with their forefathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God would never let his people be completely destroyed. He was going to preserve a remnant and bring that remnant to repentance so that he might rescue them and fulfill what he had promised to Abraham and later to David. And this was going to, and this had to happen because God was going to ultimately through Israel, provide the Messiah who would not just save Israel, but all people. And finally, <clears throat> kind of along the same lines, God acted because he would not allow other nations to misunderstand his glorious nature. He was going to give testimony to himself. Kind of interesting verses in Deuteronomy 29 and 32. One of them says, when people see what happens to Israel, they will say, why did the Lord do this to his people? And they will respond because they turned away from God. But God's going to say, I'm going to give myself the glory I deserve. People are going to know when I judge you. However, people are not going to uh, be allowed to misunderstand because the ones that judge you, they might say, ah, look what we did to Israel. He says, no, I will not let Israel be completely cut off because otherwise people will say that they did it. No, I'm going to show them that it was me the whole time. In judgment, I will give testimony to myself, but also in restraint and in preservation of Israel, I will give testimony of myself. Really, these reasons all speak to the fact that the reason God acted to save Israel was for his own sake. He was being faithful to himself, being faithful to his own nature, being faithful to the covenant that he had made with Israel, being faithful to his own glory. 
Some final questions. I know this is a lot of information to take in, but some questions as we consider application of what we've looked at today. Do we live lives of true repentance before God? Or do we just go through the motions? Drawing close to God when times are tough and when we need deliverance like Israel, but as soon as the situation changes, we fall away. Do we keep returning to the same old sins and patterns in our lives? Or do we finally put away the foreign gods that are among us and actually devote ourselves to the Lord? Do we understand rightly the faithfulness of God to us? Faithfulness to love, preserve, and discipline us if we are his children, but faithfulness to judge and destroy us if we are his enemies. God must be faithful to himself. Are you thankful for the massive outpouring of love that God has shown you in faithfulness? And consider the judges. Even God's righteous judges, spirit-empowered judges, fall into big sins. Sins that were probably relatively common in their time period, I think, as you pointed out, Roy. But they were nonetheless heinous. Do we think of ourselves as being invulnerable to certain big sins? I would never go that far. God would never let me do that. Actually, he might, just to show you that you must not presume or trifle with sin. Are there sins that you've tolerated in your life because they're so normal in our society? Or even in the church, among Christians? Has our culture or our own feelings affected the way that we interpret the commands the Bible gives us. If you have other comments or questions, come see me afterwards. Let's close in prayer. Lord, your word is great, and you are great. You are faithful to yourself, and we're glad for that, God, because because you've entered into covenant with us, that means that you've set your love on us. If we truly do believe in you, and you will be faithful, you'll be faithful to preserve us until the time you call us home. But you also be faithful to discipline us, God, because you want the best for us. We thank you for that. Oh, Lord, teach us to rightly love and fear you as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen.